1: Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. I'm very excited to introduce an old friend who has sort of returned into my life again, which I'm very excited about, Charlene Lee. She has just produced another amazing book, one of many. Uh, The new one is called The Disruption Mindset, and we'll be talking a little bit about that today. But first of all, I just want to welcome you to the show. Welcome, Charlene.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's been about
1: 10 years of sort of coming and going into through each other's lives, and uh, it's been amazing to watch the journey. And as we all know, in today's day and age, a lot of things happen, and there's a lot of disruption that has happened in the last 10 years in the way that businesses are run and the way technology impacts businesses. So having this conversation about the evolving digital self and how technology is changing the way we work and live really is ever-present in both of our work today. So just to give our listeners a little background and where you're coming from, can you give us a little sort of just what's your story? Where are you coming from?
2: Well, I have been an analyst and an author for 20 years now. So I was at Forrester for 20 years, starting in 1999. Before that, I was in newspaper publishing and consulting. And I originally went out of the tech space and internet publishing into being an analyst just for a few years uh, as I was raising a young family. I just wanted to be out of management and leadership, just wanted to be an individual contributor. And I found after two years, I loved doing this. And it was a natural place for me to be to be writing about business and strategy and technology. And so after about 10 years and covering everything from internet to advertising, I did all the dot-com advertising projections, covering search and Google's IPO. I settled on this new crazy space called social media and social technologies and wrote a book in 2008 called Groundswell, which is how we met, yep. originally. And, and talking about how companies can actually use these technologies. And like stumbled upon this whole new world that... I just thought was so excited it was going to change so many things. And along the way, I've written a ton of more books and, and more recently have been really helping organizations and leaders figure out how do they thrive in a time of change and a time of disruption. And they asked me a really good question. How do you actually do that? How do you thrive with disruption? And I didn't have a really concrete, concise answer which is when I don't know the answer to something, I go and do research. And then I end up writing a book. So that's how this book came to be. Well, I
1: love it. And and I think, you know, one of the things that's really amazing about the way that you sort of constructed the book is that you really walk people through the process and the possibility to be a disruptor. I mean, because a lot of sort of the, the thought is that either you are or you aren't, that you're sort of born that way. And I think you open up the possibility that it's something that can be learned and it's something that we can adapt to. But there are certain characteristics that obviously make some people more adaptable to that. There was sort of this common thread that I found. You mentioned the word a few times, but it really stuck out to me, even in sort of the opening few paragraphs, of humility and the importance of humility and and the ability to adapt. And I wanted to just sort of touch on that because I think that that's something is really for all of us when we're dealing with any kind of change, whether it's technological change or personal transformational change, if you don't approach it with humility and the ability to change, you know, you're sort of stuck before you get started. How does that fit into sort of your ideas of where you've worked with this?
2: Well, I think what humility imparts onto a person and how they keep centered on things is that you realize that the work is never done. You realize that where you are today is not where you're going to be tomorrow. And that Growth comes from learning and learning comes from not always getting what you want. And that, I think being humble says that I am still on a journey and sometimes I'll be successful. Sometimes I won't be, but it's the experience of the journey that's going to help me grow. And here's the thing is growth is disruptive. If you're going to grow in a meaningful way, it's hard. It means challenging yourself, putting yourself into uncomfortable situations. I like to say, you know, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. And that's where disruption is. The people who are disruptors like to hang out at the very edge of that comfort zone. They're they're going over it quite a few times and really pushing themselves so they know that's where the magic happens. Do
1: you think, I mean, we had a, a brief conversation about this when we met last time of sort of the movement that you see in, uh, particularly in the Valley, and I mean Silicon Valley when we talk about that, but that there's this sort of forced transformation. Like All of the leaders are going to do these personal transformational retreats to sort of learn how to get comfortable in that uncomfortable place and to sort of work on all their stuff that's keeping them from getting there. Do you see that as part of the disruption movement or is that something else?
2: I think, again, what these leaders are doing is they realize that they need to have that centering moment and to be able to center themselves again and again. Like, where am I? It's hard to go forward if you don't know where you are. And so that's what they're doing. They're finding themselves centering themselves because their things are so crazy, so wacky that if you don't take a moment to say, okay, where am I? How am I connected to the rest of the world? All this touchy-feely stuff. It's incredibly powerful because what I found with these disruptive organizations, they're actually not chaotic. It's almost like organized chaos. If they're actually very, very organized. They have a lot of foundational work. They, have, they do a lot of process. And that's not what you think of as a disruptive organization. If you think that everyone is off doing their own thing, It's just the opposite. These disruptive organizations have things locked down. They create this foundation and a scaffolding so that they don't have to spend a lot of time and energy, psychic energy, literally trying to figure out how to get things to work. They just do. Then they can go off and do the truly crazy things.
1: It's that organized chaos in a way. I love that. And and I think some of the examples that you brought out in the book were really, they were great stories, first of all. But were there any that really stuck out to you as sort of a surprise
2: that you hadn't anticipated as you were approaching them? I, I think all of them had this little bit of, of messiness to them. They were all kind of messy. And I asked the interviewees to tell me, Like, don't tell me all the things that went right. Tell me the things that went wrong. Like, what was really hard about this? And what struck me is that they were all really honest about it. I think some of the most interesting ones were people from, like, McKinsey. You know, McKinsey & Company, this white shoe, top-of-the-line consulting firm. And then the global managing director was so honest, like, this was really hard for us. So this is what we had to do to really disrupt ourselves. And it was not by any consensus. It was deeply, deeply divided in terms of how they want to do things. So it just gave me an insight into like, man, they're just like us. You know, they're struggling with this just like all of us. And if McKinsey's doing this, if like firms like Adobe are doing this and, you know, managing to buck their way through, right, then there's some hope for the rest of us that we can do this too.
1: Are there some of the things that you picked up from that that you found you could either personally apply or apply within your own organization directly that sort of really struck you at the heart of like, oh, I could really do, you know, I could make a shift because of this.
2: Yeah, i talked to quite a few of the leaders. And one person that really impressed me was Max Holland, who is currently the director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I mean, he's in the art space where it's all about conservation and being conservative. And he's been this lifelong disruptor, starting in Germany, just kind of Doing things in a completely different way. And he is so authentically Max. And he's incredibly down to earth, very humble, really connects with people, started, you know, working with all the curators and talking to them across different areas. And, and what it struck me is that there are no rules when it comes to this. And that each person brings to them their own sensibilities. And he was a person that not only is a fantastic art curator, just fantastically and has great vision about that, but he's also a business person. It's a matter of fact, let's get it done and knows how to rally the troops to go get it done and to inspire them. So it, it really made me sit back and say, how do I bring all of myself into a situation when I'm called upon to lead, where I'm not checking any part of me at the door. I'm full-heartedly full-throatedly embracing the situation from where I am and what I have to give.
1: I love that. And I think it's so true. And I I think we're around the same age. So I find that there's sort of this shift. It's sort of like that, you know, mid-century shift where we're all of a sudden, a little more introspective and a little more looking at like, I want to use all of me to make this happen. You know, I don't want to just work with one little piece. And, And I think that that obviously it gets scaled to an entire organization and an entire ecosystem really to understand sort of how do we make all of this work together to move us forward and and that's not easy you know it's it sounds all nice and, and you know oh it should be easier if you use everything and I think one of the things that uh that sort of struck me as I was reading the work as sort of the approach, for example, in, you know, that universities are struggling with right now and sort of the the challenge between the demand for interdisciplinary work and and interdisciplinary studies versus sort of the, you know, the old classic siloed approach to learning. And how do we disrupt those models? I mean, it's not unique to one particular industry. Every industry, every area is being disrupted by that. Is there any particular industry that you see the disruption is more profound, or is it pretty much across the board that you think that there's, you see this happening?
2: Anything that is being touched by digital, where there's Mm -hmm. a replacement or impact of digital technologies and communications is going to have a bigger impact. I mean, it's kind of a given because you can just do things in a faster and more different way. But I'll give you an example. It's not in the book, but I talked to one executive at a sand company, S-A-N-D. Like, I'm not kidding you. It's sand. And this person was saying to me, man, my industry is going through so much disruption right now. It's it's so hard. I'm like, what do you mean? You make sand. How can sand be that disruptive? And he goes, well, you know, sand is used in glass. And glass is going through this huge change. There's a huge demand for it, but different types of glass and smart glass. And he goes, I'm like, oh, now I get it. Mm -hmm. And he's like, how do I stay on top of all these new trends and stay relevant to my customer in the future? It is incredibly challenging but being highly disrupted. So you, you said something early on in our conversation that we think of disruption as on or off. And it's not. It's actually a continuum. And I call it the disruption quotient. Put yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 about your ability to drive exponential change, which is what disruption is. And most people put themselves somewhere in the middle. And then you have to think about, let's put that in context. If you're like a 4 or 5, but your organization, your industry is like a 2 or 3, you are highly disruptive. But if you're like a 7 or 8, but your industry and company are 9 and 10s, you're a laggard. Mm-hmm. So this is, again, I, I think when we look at disruption from where we stand, it feels awful no, no matter which way you look at it. It just feels painful because the relationships that we tended to count on to be stable are being changed literally right in front of us. So the, the key for disruptive leaders is to say, how do I manage that change? How do I anticipate that change, make that change happen but put just enough scaffolding on it so people don't go completely crazy. So it's about this balance of moving forward as quickly as possible, but also knowing what kind of supports you need to be there so people will feel comfortable taking that step forward great you know there was
1: one thing that you you actually at one point broke it down by gender and sort of your perceived level of disruption did you look at at all at uh, different cultures as well i mean i i think you know coming from a scandinavian culture one of the things that has always sort of been intriguing to me is that because The Scandinavian countries, you mentioned one in your book and the Norwegian company, but the Norwegian publishing company that really did a beautiful job with uh, disruptive transformation. But one of the things is when they're coming from a really small country, they assume that they're, you know, they can't be the behemoth. So growth is not the first step. And so it's it's more about like how do we fit into the bigger picture. Whereas when you come from an American business, and American like everything is all about growth. Get big first, and then we'll figure it out. And I wonder if that cultural piece might also be related to sort of where your ability to be agile and disruptive in.
2: Yeah, the, what I, I didn't have a chance to break it out in the book because this is like way too much data to, mm-hmm. to put it in. I actually surveyed people in the US, but also UK, Germany, Brazil, and China. So it it was fairly multidimensional. And the the interesting thing is that US and the UK, and to some extent Germany too as well, were pretty middle of the board, about six out of 10 in terms of the disruption. China was like, you know, 7.58, and Brazil was like an 8.5. There were like a ton of nine and tens, Brazilian leaders. I'm like, what's going on in Brazil? And when you think about it, when you think about it, Brazil has been going through so much turmoil, so much flux and disruption, huge increase in growth and opportunity in the GDP, and then a tremendous crash over the past couple of years. And that's in a period of like five years. Mm-hmm. So they're used to a lot of disruption. And any kind of change you're doing isn't small incremental changes. They're talking about big, huge levels of change. Same thing with China. And we didn't see any gender gap in Brazil and China. In fact, the women in Brazil were more disruptive, perceived themselves more disruptive than the men. We saw a little bit of a gender gap in Germany and the UK. In the US, it was extremely pronounced, where men and women with the same capabilities and mindsets around disruption and leadership, the women, again, with the exact same capabilities and mindset would rate themselves a full step lower on their ability to drive disruption than men. Wow
1: really you know it's like that perceived disempowerment and I mean it is. is it there or is it you know you've got to wonder whether the culture or whether the the system also not only sets them up for the perceived
2: disempowerment or whether it really is disempowering them i can't understand i can't tease out the causation Yeah, right? i can see some correlation in there but it just my own experience and talking to people and again this is completely anecdotal yeah women pull themselves back we pull ourselves back I struggle with imposter syndrome constantly. Like, I don't know, should I really call them or not? We don't raise our hands and think that, you know, what I don't, we're so humble, we're so realistic about where we are. Like, I couldn't do that job, mm-hmm. not realizing that everybody else applying for the job are just like them. Mm-hmm. So, part of the reason I wanted to point that out is that instead of trying to figure out why, let's, how do we figure out how to fix that? And, and this is a case across this disruption training across the board. You can learn to be more disruptive, but it's not easy. It requires that you see yourself as a disruptor, that there's a potential, and more than anything else, if you see the opportunity for a change, then you go, how can I actually make that change happen? Why not me? Why can't I go and do that? And to systematically uh, develop the leadership capabilities, behaviors, to be able to lead other people, to empower them and to inspire them. And that is a very vulnerable skill. It's not something that you're just naturally born with. So I I look at this to say, when we're in a time where we desperately need more disruptive leaders, we need to pay a special attention to women to encourage them to step it up, come up there, live at that very edge, be uncomfortable and be their full disruptive selves.
1: I love it. And and I mean I think it's so true. I meet so many amazing women that are really suffer from imposter syndrome. They've got like they're incredible and they're doing the most amazing things and they're so humble and quiet and they're so they're so willing to put others on a pedestal and to sort of sit in the background and it's like, Come on, let's hear you roar and like get this movement going, ladies. You know, it's I mean I guess in some way at least they're they're getting the movement going but they're maybe not willing to be at the head of it which isn't necessarily a bad thing but but i think that we need to see more women taking the initiative to just get out there and and not be afraid
2: yeah and and for us to also say to somebody you can do this job i want you to do this job mm-hmm. because we recognize that not all leadership is about being bravado and out there in front of people it's about getting that change done
1: absolutely Absolutely. We're going to take a really quick break just to get a word from our sponsor, Rocketbook, who are doing some really cool stuff. Talk about disruption. I first discovered these guys when I was doing my dissertation, actually, because I was desperate to find a solution where I could do pen on paper to do my notes, but actually be able to merge everything electronically so that it was easily searchable. So Rocketbook, Pro are these really cool notebooks that you can basically scan and everything gets digitized and searchable and it's just a brilliant tool. So if you go to the show notes, you'll find links to it and you can get more information about it, but I highly recommend it. And they've got a new tool that you can actually capture your whiteboard information as well. So check those guys out and they've been wonderful about sponsoring the show and providing a special rate for you if you purchase your Rocketbook Pro through the link. On the show notes, and it helps support the show and keeps us going and on the air. So, just wanted to say thank you and shout out to RocketBook Pro for sponsoring today's show. And we'll get right back into our great conversation with Charlene Lee about her new book, Disruption Mindset. And I'm just going to do a really quick. I got to show the book because I love this cover because red is really. It's just. It's in, it's in your face. You need to have something that stands out on the bookshelf. And this is like a, a disruption thing. I mean, in all the books that I published, I do them in like this light, subtle tone color. And I'm like, I would grab this off of a bookshelf. That in itself is disruption. Why don't we think about these things? I love it. So good job. Kudos. I don't know whether that was your decision or your publisher's decision, but it's really a nice job. You've got to get that voice out there. I want to take a little bit of a a sort of a switch of angle and just talk a little bit about for you and your pattern of sort of where you feel that technology has has influenced the changes in technology have influenced your career path, your personal path, and the way that you manage your own well being and lifestyle. So that's a much bigger question. That's not that wasn't fair to throw all of that at you at once. So just in general, you know, we both came from a similar space of working a lot with social technologies and sort of teaching organizations how to integrate social technologies and and use them as the the changing wave hit us of social media. You've came into it from the publishing perspective and then switch. Can you talk a little bit about how that transition felt for you and how you rode that wave?
2: Yeah, I came um, into the San Jose Mercury News in 1993. And there was no World Wide Web when I joined. (laughs) So that's that's how early it was. And we started publishing in the fall of 1994 onto the web. We were just on Mercury Center and AOL up until then. And um, so being at the very front edge of that, literally writing HTML with no cascading style sheets. I mean, this is we were hand-coding everything. Yeah, I remember uh, those days. Up, <laughs> right in the middle of things. It was so hard. And then I went into the community newspaper group in Boston and became different than a publisher. So it, it was exponentially harder because we had 120 newspapers publishing to 200 towns, and every town had their own site. Then we also started a self-publishing system. So that this is again in 1998. This is really early on where they could go and put in like what's happening at the city council or at the church meeting or at the Cub Scouts or at the spaghetti feed. And so people could share all that within their town. It was just crazy. We were just way, way early in terms of doing that and things like, you know, publishing our classifieds and getting paid for it. So it was really early on. we were profitable, just doing things in a completely different way. And I had a, a parent company that was highly, highly supportive of taking all these crazy risks. So we were doing things that no other newspaper were doing. And we were just a group of community newspapers, but it was a great place to be there. And that gave me the confidence to just do things in a completely different way. So even when I went to Forrester, I started a blog there. And no, I mean, all of the content from Forrester was behind a firewall. And so for me to have a blog out there was like, what are you doing? You're giving it away for free. I'm like, no, I'm getting more people to come to see us and allowing comments, like a crazy idea, like I would actually want to hear from people. So I was practicing and doing these things from about 2004. And uh, so, yeah, I've been blogging for 15 years, doing something about these social technologies for a long time. And it just felt so authentic that I could have a dialogue with people. And I think that's the thing that I still remain really hopeful for. I'm actually working on a report now about social technologies, what's the future look like, especially for how organizations use it. And it's gone back to just being used as another marketing channel, another marketing tool. We don't use it as brands to have authentic conversations with people, to truly connect with people, not just a customer and a number, a customer service call, but to really understand customers as people. How so I think you, that's how I think about things.
1: <laughs> yeah. How do you feel that's impacted the way, I mean, do you feel that you have a good balanced relationship with technology yourself and good routines and, and uh, sort of boundaries around it for you and your family or within your organization? Because- for example, I remember in the early stages with, when the mobile phones were coming out and in offices, a lot of the conversation was, wait a minute, you expect me to be available after work hours, you know, to respond to a text or to respond, it was even before texting, to respond to a telephone call, you know, sort of where, you know, where those boundaries are, has that changed for you? Or do you feel that being early in on the wave, you developed good boundaries and guidelines for how that works?
2: I, uh, I developed really strong guidelines for myself and my family and for my team. In particular, again, from a time management point of view, you can't be constantly interrupted by all these things. So I turn off all of my notifications and I go to my digital media when it's time to go use it. and I use it very strategically. I think about it as having a social media diet. A diet doesn't mean you cut everything out. It just says, how are you going to balance everything out? So I try to follow a limited number of people on Twitter and LinkedIn, and I make my feed work for me. I make it work because I'm studying these topics, I follow keywords, hashtags, I'm looking at particular companies or my clients, I want to stay in touch with them. So it's very specific of why I do this. I also have a ban on phones, and electronics at dinnertime, I have always had that. And some of the biggest objections came from you know, my husband and myself, like, oh man, what if somebody calls me? Like. Is it that urgent? You know, I can set the phone over there. If they really need to reach us, if it's an emergency, they'll just call a couple of times and then we know to pick up. the phone. I mean, just nothing is that urgent. And sure, I'm always available that if somebody really needs to reach me, I'm around. But most things are not that urgent that they can't wait a couple hours or until the next morning. And then even I was getting into a habit of like, waiting, it's been a lifelong insomniac, This thoughts in my head. I would wake up at two o'clock in the morning and do work, but I would refrain from emailing, sending out the email. I would just always put it on a, on a delayed send to send out at you know, 8.30 in the morning because I didn't want people to think that they had to get up at two o'clock in the morning to respond to my emails, just things like that. So I, I try to keep things in perspective and really try to do a better job of managing when I'm going to use technology I'm going to make it work for me, I'm never going to become a slave to the technology where it's pinging me and telling me what to do.
1: Nice. And do you use any technology tools to sort of help you with your own personal well-being? whether it's like a mindfulness app or, you know, streaming yoga or a fitness um About the only something?
2: thing I use, I track with my watch and my phone just automatically my, how many steps I take. Just so it just reminds me, like uh, I'm getting a little bit too much in my seat. I have a stand-up desk, so I'll stand up too as well. And I about the only thing I do is I use an app called Seven Minute Workout. So while I'm traveling, I just do two or three rounds of that in my my hotel room because I don't need any equipment. I can do it in my bare feet and my pajamas. And then I was using Headspace for a little bit. I use Calm and some Insight Timer things periodically to just do meditation. But frankly, I just Kind of just take a moment, center myself continuously throughout the day. I'm not one of these people who really get a lot out of, look at 10, 20, 30 hour long meditation. I find that just like sitting on the bus, sitting in my Uber, walking into a place, washing my hands. These small moments that are reminders for me. Take a deep breath, to figure out where I am in the world think about the next thing I'm going to have to do and be completely 100% present for that person I'm going to interact with next.
1: Nice, nice. And I mean, it's, it's really about being conscious and conscious about whether you choose to use the technology or not, or, and when you do. And I, I, I love that. Just the thought of sort of taking that moment when you're washing your hands, take a deep breath and be like, I'm right here, feet are grounded, like, I'm here and now. It doesn't have to be a 20-minute or 20-hour meditation that necessarily brings you back to self. But sometimes just that moment to check in is really vital. I really appreciate that thought and and a reminder for all of you out there listening that that it doesn't take much to be conscious of of our own behaviors and ourselves and how we can engage because whether you're a disruptor or a follower which there's a whole nother thing about followers and non- and that's a whole nother podcast. So we're not even going to go into that today because the only note, the little asterisk that I will say there is that never think of a follower being a bad thing, that there's, there's lots of different types of followers and, and they're just as much needed and sometimes more needed than the leaders or the ones that start the movements.
2: I would say that I'm a very good follower. Mm-hmm. I like to say that I'm a good, extremely good follower because if somebody else is, I can't be a leader and disrupt everything in my life. So when it comes to like the environment or to nutrition or something, there are some amazing voices that are out there. So I'll go and follow them. and like, okay, I'm going to be inspired by them. And I would, they'll tell me what to do and I'll be happy to, and I'll go and amplify those voices in my own channels. And I become a leader in that way, but I'm not the person always at the front edges. And if you're a, good disruptor, you're going to find and nurture those relationships with your followers, especially your set of first followers who are out there.
1: Yeah. And I I think that's so important. And all of you that are listening, don't forget to be followers and go out and get the book because it's phenomenal. And it'll be coming out very soon. And actually, by the time this podcast comes out, you should be able to buy it pretty much everywhere. And I highly recommend you do. Just to remind you again, it's called Disruption Mindset, so don't forget that. We're not ending quite yet, but I just wanted to make sure I get another little plug in there for you because it's a great book and everyone should read it. But I also want to talk a little bit about you've been talking a lot about aggregating change makers and and people that really want to have an influence in the world. And I think That's something, the whole thing of cultivating your communities that comes back to where we worked in the beginning of, you know, sort of the intent behind the proper use of social technology. It's like getting movements going and getting the right people together and finding ways, whether it's finding your followers or finding your people so that you can make things happen. I'm really excited about what you're doing. And I think that there's a lot of things that, you know, whether it's, you know, specifically about that, or more just in general, what do you recommend for people who have a really, you know, strong mission and intent, but have a hard time finding their people to support making that happen? What are the things that you recommend people do when they ask you that?
2: Yeah, again, I think being a disruptor is a really lonely place to be because you oftentimes feel like everybody else out there is doing – they don't even understand what you're talking about. You feel like an alien with, like, three heads or something. And and I think, it, again, in most organizations, there's usually somebody else who thinks like this. So to find that one, two, maybe a dozen people, gather on a regular basis, support each other – develop your capabilities of being able to create change. Having that safe space inside an organization is just a a wonderful thing to have. The feeling that if you truly are alone in an organization, then finding people in adjacent industries or even just in the local area is super, super helpful. I realize though how hard that is, which is one of the reasons why I'm starting to create a network of disruptors called quantum. And I think more than anything else, Being able to put the flag out there, find people even just on LinkedIn or other places and find them through communities, like even in this podcast, to connect with other people in here and have this place where you feel like, okay, other people have been through the things that I have been through, and to realize that you need to feed that, you need to support that on a regular basis. It's really hard, almost impossible to do this completely on your own. So I've been lucky that I'm a part of a great CEO community called YPO. And that has been a saving grace for me for eight going on nine years now. It's absolutely fantastic.
1: I love that. And those are great words of wisdom, shall we say. And I noticed in your book, you also talked about being a mentor with SEO. Of course, everybody's going to go out and buy your book and read about it. So they should learn about it anyway. But can you share a little bit about this? This this organization was new to me. I didn't know about it. And it sounds like they're doing some really incredible work. And it sort of reminded me a little bit of like what Chip Conley is doing, but in a different sense, you know, with his, with a modern elders movement, this so important, really looking at the ability to mentor and to sort of as you rise, bring up others up with you. How did you get involved in SEO? And can you talk a little bit more about
2: what that is? Yeah, a friend of mine, I was talking to her over dinner and talking about the book, and she goes, You should interview the founder of SEL, like Alshowitz. It's it's and so the more I looked into it, it was great. And I interviewed him and I realized that she had been a mentor, really enjoyed it. I'm like, hey, my kids are grown. I'm gonna be an empty nests. I could do some mentoring, I could go and mentor a high school student. And so this program finds mentors for a junior in high school, in this case, a public high school in San Francisco. And they particularly work with students who nobody in their family has ever been to college. And this is the one thing that you can do to help lift an entire family's ecosystem out of poverty and to really change the course of not just one student's life, but their entire family, which is to send them and have them graduate from a four-year college. So starting from ninth grade in high school all the way to their final year of college, eight years is how long this mentoring program stays in place. So, And it's a 90% graduation away from college of the students who enter into it. So I'm like, hey, I love that. And it's, it's absolutely fantastic. I have a mentee and... I'm inspired by everything she does. I mean, it's incredible what she has to do to go to school, even if she's on the other side of the city, uh, support parents who don't speak any English, the burden that she has to carry with that. So I thought I was going to be helping people, but her example helped ground me and helped me understand like what this true resilience and strength and grit and disruption really look like.
1: I love that. And I I can pretty much guarantee that that girl is going to go on to do something amazing. Having a mentor like you, she's going to be inspiring others all over the place. So I I think it's really important for us to remember those face-to-face interactions, those opportunities for giving back and for being part of something much bigger than ourselves. And I've been part of a lot of mentoring programs, but a lot of them have been in more of a virtual environment. And I think it's really exciting i i you know obviously the classic mentoring thing has of face to face has been around forever, but I think a lot of people don't really know how to get involved even if they want to, or they don't necessarily realize that they have something to offer. How did people get involved in something like s e o and that's not s- search engine optimization by the way, for those of you who are like legacy social technology people from my audience there. It stands for, and I be, I better get you to say it, because I probably would say it incorrectly. Um, student,
2: student for Employment uh, Education Opportunity. Okay. So, it, and it sees every opportunity sort of the nickname. Yeah. Uh, and, and the idea is that everybody's born with the same, you know, ability and is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. So this is trying to rebalance
1: I love it. I didn't warn you that I was going to ask you a little bit about that. But it just really inspired me when I was reading it. it, mentioned that you had been doing some mentoring with it. So I just wanted to find out a little bit more personally. And I thought it might be a good thing for our audience. And it sounds like they're actually fairly global. So even though some of you listeners may not be in the US, it sounds like you may be able to get involved even in your local market in some way. So go ahead and check it out. Do you know if there's a URL for them? We can make sure we have that in the show notes. I so know that.
2: for the US is SEO USA.org. Okay. But we can put it in the show notes, I'll send it to you.
1: Okay, great. We'll make sure that it's in there too. And uh, just want to circle back and make sure that you all remember Disruption Mindset will be coming to the stores on
2: the 17th of September. Did I get that right? Um, 24th is the official hardcover launch.
1: Oh, okay. It was the 17th, I think, that you can get the, uh, the Kindle version because right. I looked at that. Okay. Anyway, so but they're both available very soon. And so by the time this podcast actually makes it out there, because unfortunately, my producer is still on break, but we will be getting it out soon and uh, look forward to sharing this with you. And if you have any questions or have any, you know, want to do any follow up and want to know more about Charlene's work, we'll make sure that we put all of her links in the show notes and you can follow her on Twitter. She's very active on social media. So you'll be able to find out where she is speaking and what she is doing and and uh, how to get involved if you're interested. Thank you so much for the work that you do and for joining me today on The Evolving Digital Self. This has been such an honor to have you join us. Thank you, Charlene. Thank you so much. And thank you, digital selfers, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have your ear for this little visit and uh, look forward to catching you next time. Until then, bye-bye for now.